You will turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, this morning we are looking at verses 6 through 10, and the title of our sermon is A Different Gospel. Our keywords are gospel, false, and angel. I was reminded this week about a a story about a man who we are going to call John Doe, and you will know why in a minute. It made its way around the internet a while ago, and I just had to hold it for the right time, and I thought this was the right time. It is a true story about an online dating site encounter that a lady had with this man. Now, I don't know how all of this works, but apparently on Match.com, people put up information about themselves and pictures, and if someone is interested after they look at your profile, uh, they send you a message or something and saying they're willing to talk to you or something along those lines. So um, anyway, this lady saw John's profile, and she liked his page, and so he got a message telling him that, he was, that she was interested. And here was his reply to her. I live in a 31-story high-rise condominium right in the middle of the Buckhead Nightlife District. Do you ever come to this area of town to shop or go out or visit or explore? I went to an Ivy League school, the University of Pennsylvania, for my undergraduate degree in economics and my graduate degree in management at Wharton School of Business. Where did you go to school? What activities do you currently participate in to stay in shape? I work out four times a week at LA Fitness. Do you exercise regularly? I am six feet tall, 185 pounds. What about yourself? I'm truly sorry if that sounds rude, impolite, or even downright crass, but I have been deceived before by inaccurate representations, so I prefer someone to be upfront and honest on initial contact. I do mergers and acquisitions in corporate finance for limited brands. Enjoy any of our stores or divisions? Do you have any other recent pictures you care to share? I have many others if you care to see them. Regards, John. So, upon reading this very lovely introduction from John, uh, our lady friend replied with a message that simply said she wasn't interested because it seemed clear that their personalities were not going to be a good match. Thinking it over, she never expected to receive this reply from our friend John. He said in return, I think you forgot how this works. You hit on me, and therefore, you have to impress me and pass my criteria and standards, not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question lets me know one thing. You are not in shape. I am a trainer on the side. In fact, I'm heading to the gym in 26 minutes. So next time you meet a guy of my caliber, instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. I will even give you one free training session so you don't blow it with the next Ivy League grad, Menson number, who can bench and squat and leg press over 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, has an MBA from the top school in the country, lives in a Buckhead high-rise, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in 14 major motion pictures. Oh, that's right. There aren't any more of those. Well, quite an impressive resume. So what is it about this guy that leads him to write something like this? If I ask for a show of hands, and I'm not, so please don't, um, of everyone here who, after an honest evaluation of their own hearts, could say, 
that they see some of John Doe in themselves. I'm not sure any of us want to admit that. But if we're honest, we can say it's true. All of us at some point, at some level, and even if we're faithful Christians, we are seeking to live our lives upon ourselves. Our lineage, our credentials, our good deeds, where we live, what we drive, what we do, where we've been. We're seeking to live our lives upon a false gospel that says we have to be the right kind of person and do the right kind of things or be admired and applauded by others so that they can see us for who we are and what we do. Ever since the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, man has sought to live his life according to works. We've sought time and time again to justify ourselves to make sure that others are aware of it. In fact, I will make the bold claim this morning that every other worldview apart from genuine Christianity lives upon this principle. You have to be good, you have to try hard, and you have to let others know about it if you're going to be successful, loved, and accepted. We're going to see that The churches in Galatia were being infiltrated by a group of false teachers, a lot like our friend John Doe. Men who wanted to gain an audience, and they did so by speaking ill of the Apostle Paul and telling the people of Galatia that what Paul was teaching was all wrong. This gospel he was preaching, they would say, wasn't true. There was more to it. He had left it off, so they were there to correct it. And wouldn't you know it, their correction is founded on the basis of works. So we're going to see the number one primary reason why Paul is writing to the Galatian churches. This is the foundation upon which the rest of Paul's letter is written, the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. So we'll read together in Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6. If you're using the blue ESV Bible from the back of the chair, it's on page 972. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the first thing we learn from our passage this morning is that believing another gospel is to desert God himself. We see that in verse 6. Now, in most of Paul's letters, he moves from his greeting his introduction right into his first theological issue and he does it with a bit of gentle finesse. But not here, not what we see with the Galatians. Immediately out of the gate, 
Paul tells the Galatians, I am astonished. Now, I told you last week, the book of Galatians is not for the faint-hearted. If this was a letter written today from Paul to the churches in an email, it would have a lot of capital letters and bold and underline and italics and exclamation marks. He's sort of shouting this at them. And he tells them of his astonishment because they're quickly deserting the one who called them by the grace of Christ. Now, when the Bible talks about the calling of men, uh, when it talks about uh, bringing people into salvation, it always, without exception, is referring to God the Father through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this case, because it pertains to their salvation, it is safe to conclude that Paul is referring here to the Father. This is the work of God the Father. So Paul is saying they've deserted God the Father who called them in the grace of Jesus Christ by their turning to a different gospel. And so if we put all of this together, we can say that God, through the preaching of the Apostle Paul and the effectual work of the Holy Spirit, applied the work of Jesus to their lives by grace and through that application of grace, he converted many of their, the Galatians from their idolatrous pagan religion and from Judaism to Christianity. He had, in the words of Paul in Romans 10, led them to believe with their hearts and confess with their mouths the very truth of God, that Jesus is the Christ. And they had done it. Paul writes in verse 6, in the grace of Christ. It was a wonderful blessing to them just as it is a wonderful blessing to you and I. It was undeserved. It was unsolicited. It was entirely of God's sovereign kindness. So we can get some sense of why Paul is being so forceful. He's telling them, I've preached to you the true gospel. God has done a great work of salvation. You didn't want it. You didn't ask for it. He brought you out of darkness into light that you may have true life everlasting in the grace of Jesus Christ. And you're all deserting it. You're turning now to a different gospel. I am astonished. It's interesting to note how Paul writes this. It's not as though the Galatians were saying, I don't believe in Christ. They're not saying, I don't believe Jesus is God and that he died for my sins and that he was resurrected from the dead. They weren't saying any of those things. No, Paul says their desertion of God was by their turning to a different gospel. Now, Paul was one who had come to Galatia himself. Before they'd heard the gospel, he preached the gospel for the very first time. He preached to them the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has existed eternally, who came into the world in the flesh, born of a virgin to live a life that no other man could live. God the Father sent his Son into the world not because he had to, not because we were lovable, but because he chose to set his, his love on a people whom he would call as his own. So Jesus lived a perfect life, and by his perfect life we mean that he fulfilled the law of God in all of its civil ramifications, in all of its ceremonial ramifications, and even in all of its moral ramifications in the Ten Commandments. And this moral law is where you and I very quickly can admit that we have broken God's law. But Jesus fulfilled it perfectly, and not once did he fail. 
And so Jesus in his perfect life represents those who were given to him by the Father before the foundations of the world. And at the end of his perfect life, he's crucified on a cross in a place of all who believe on him. And the full wrath is given to him that we deserve. And by his perfection, Christ in no way deserved this death. But in his death, received in himself the penalty of sin for all who trust in him. He died for his people. He did not make us redeemable. He actually redeemed us. And as a result... Not one of God's children can be lost. Christ took on wrath, and in return, he credits to us all of his righteousness in our account so that the Father doesn't judge us based on our personal deeds, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And then Jesus is raised from the dead three days after his death, and in being raised from the dead, he secures the resurrection and everlasting life of all who are his The Holy Spirit then comes and applies the work of Jesus in the hearts of all who believe, convincing us of our sin and our misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills, persuading us to embrace Jesus Christ who is freely offered as the good news of our salvation. And as a gift from God, we are given the faith to believe. We are given the grace to trust in Christ and who he is and what he has accomplished and we are made able to rest in the truth and to rest in our hope that we have a salvation, we have a full assurance that for all who die to themselves and repent of our lives and our nature of sin, that we can now live upon Christ. It is by the grace of God alone, through faith, apart from any works of the law, that man is brought to bow his knee before the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, and declaring, indeed, he is Jesus Christ, the Lord. That is the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached to the Galatians. And they heard it, and they embraced it, and they believed it. And for a time, they were living within it. This is what they were so thankful for. This is what we ought to be so thankful for. This is what all genuine Christians receive and believe. But here it is that the Galatians are turning away from this good news. They're believing something else. Well, what was it? We'll get into the details in the weeks ahead, but in the most basic summary, they were believing a gospel of works righteousness. A group of false teachers called the Judaizers had infiltrated the church in Galatia. And they began teaching that salvation was, in fact, not by grace through faith apart from works of the law. They were teaching that salvation was by the grace of God and Jesus Christ plus works of the law. For the Judaizers, Belief in Jesus as the Messiah was just a truer, purer form of Judaism, but it wasn't a distinct religion apart from Judaism. They had all been circumcised as infants. They preached kosher dietary laws and rules and ritual purity. Uh, They worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem until it was destroyed in 70 AD and in the synagogues scattered throughout the Roman world on the Jewish Sabbath instead of the Lord's Day. And so they were saying, yes, 
believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you have to follow Judaism as well or you're not truly converted. And on top of this, if you recall from last week, Paul was defending his apostleship because the Judaizers weren't only preaching a false gospel, they were also telling the Galatians that Paul wasn't a true apostle at all. They couldn't trust the message because he wasn't who he said he was. So hopefully you can see now that what Paul was addressing here was very serious. He goes on to identify what's going to be our second point this morning, and that is that there is only one gospel, and all other gospels are damning and false. And we see that in verses 7 through 9. Let's read those again. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Well, Paul doesn't waste any time getting to the point here. He wants to make very clear, yes, I've said to you that the Galatians are believing another gospel, but what I mean to point out is that there really is no such thing. Here's what he means by that. When it comes to the gospel... You can't have one view over here that's close and one view over there that's close. There is only one gospel. And if it's not that gospel, then it's no gospel at all. It's interesting how Paul says this in verse 7. He says, there's some who try to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, distort literally means to reverse or to turn it inside out. So Paul is pointing his finger at the Judaizers here and he's saying, they're trying to turn you inside out. So the Judaizers were trying to reverse the order of things. Now the gospel has an order to it. God has done a work in and through Jesus Christ on our behalf and as a result of that, we who have received what we've received are now made able to do good works, not to earn or keep our salvation but because we willingly and thankfully and joyfully serve to the glory of God and love our neighbors. So the question we have to ask about the gospel is, does God love us, and as a result of his loving us and saving us, we love him and live according to his word? Or is it that we do good works, and we bring those good works to God, we give ourselves to him in love and promise to lead a good life, and as a result of that, God loves us and saves us. Now, the distinction may seem subtle, but the distinction is the difference between the true gospel and a false gospel, one that saves and one that condemns. Martin Luther deals with this when he's writing on Galatians, and he says, Where the righteousness of the law rules, there there the righteousness of grace cannot rule. Where the righteousness of grace reigns, the righteousness of the law cannot reign. One of them must give way to the other. If you cannot believe that God will forgive your sins for Christ's sake, he who was sent into the world to be our high priest... How then will you believe that he will forgive you through the works of the law that you could never perform or through your own works, which, as you must be obliged to confess, 
cannot prevail against God's judgment. You see, since God's standard is absolute, total perfection in accordance with his holy, righteous, perfect law, God either loves us despite ourselves and because of what Christ has accomplished as our substitute standing in our place, or we have to present our own works. And when we present our own works, they will fall far short of God's standard and they will leave us totally without hope because we are, in the words of Jesus himself, condemned already. There are no alternatives to this. There's no sort of middle ground, is there? It's Christ's righteousness or it's my righteousness that I have to live upon. Those are our options. So, so Paul is in all of this and he says, listen, those false teachers are telling you a lie. It's no gospel at all. Do you want to stand before God and base your hope of salvation on yourself and what you have done? Now, it's really easy for us as Christians to hear all of this and say, amen. And we get really excited that this is true. And we should be excited that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law. I should be so incredibly thankful of that reality. And on my best days, I really am. However, I'm still a man living in this world in the flesh. And so there's a lot of who I am that reflects something other than my resting upon Christ's righteousness. In fact, there's a lot about my life that says I'm a whole lot more like our friend John Doe than I really want to admit. My tendency is to live upon my finite goodness and my finite wisdom and my own good works instead of living upon God's infinite wisdom, his infinite goodness, his infinite love, his infinite kindness and goodness and mercy. So there are a few things better than social media to help me prove my point on this. Moms and dads, there are a lot of you here this morning and the rest of you You'll be here. You'll understand this. Let's imagine a day where you take your kids to the park by yourself. Moms, that's what you do anyway. Dads, you're just trying to be awesome and help your wife out. Give her some time to do her own thing for a while. So you get the kids to the park, and you're going to play and have some lunch and just hang out for a while. And as soon as you get there, one of the kids goes running for the swing and falls and scrapes their knees and starts to cry while the other one is heading straight for a mud puddle from the rain the night before. Sounding familiar yet? You're tending to the injured child while the other one is covering themselves in mud. The kids sort of uh, got through that whole mess. You gather around the food you brought and you realize there's ants on it. But somehow in the middle of that, you're able to brush it away, eat some of their food while the kids kind of played with each other off and on while you kept checking your watch to see if the day was almost over. Then you want to make a quick trip to the grocery store. And let me tell you, I am really impressed when I see parents alone with their kids at the grocery store. If it's more than one anyway. Two kids is impressive. Three deserves an Olympic gold medal. So after saying, don't touch that 100 times, having to go to the restroom at the back of the store when your cart is full of groceries at the front of the store, 
having to put stuff back on the shelves that magically appeared in your cart that you didn't want to buy. You eventually get to the checkout counter with all of your children crying, and then inevitably there's some nice lady there who hasn't had small children in her home for about 30 years who looks at your child, she has child amnesia, and says, these are the best moments of your life, enjoy them. So, you get your kids home, you put them in bed at 7.30, not because you're really concerned that they have an early bedtime and get enough sleep for the next day, but because you want a few hours where you forget that they exist. But it's in that moment that you get on Facebook, and you look on your phone through all the pictures you took at the park that day, and you find the one picture that you actually have where it looks like everyone was having fun and getting along. And you post it with a comment that says, had a great day with the kids today. I love them so much and can't wait to do it again. Hashtag parenting rocks. Well, what is that all about? And then your friends will look at it all and say, What in the world? How do they get their kids to be so well-behaved and pleasant and mine are overturning the world upside down? And while she's over here complaining about that, she's looking for the same great picture moment to post so she can get the world to say, oh, look how perfect her life is too. So you end up being bitter toward one another because we all want to pretend like we've got it all together and nothing goes wrong and I don't need anyone's help or advice or wisdom or anything like that because things are perfect. But it's not that way. It just looks that way for others because they're lying just like I'm lying. And because I see it and I think they're having a perfect life, I don't like them anymore. Hashtag things between us just got awkward. We don't want to see other people having the perfect life lie that we're trying to live in front of them as well. We want their lives to be as upside down and turned around as ours. And let me tell you, they are. We just don't want to admit it. Why do we do that? And we'll post all of this stuff right after sharing the article about John Doe, who was a jerk to some girl on Match.com, and not see the absolute irony of it because we don't stop to remember that my life and my worth and my acceptance before God isn't based on my own righteousness and my own works. What really matters to me is what others think about me. And if others accept me, and if I have it all together, and surely if I do, then God will like me. Think of it this way. Imagine you're standing at the edge of a massive cliff that falls a thousand feet down to the bottom in a valley and there's a cliff on the other side that you have to get to. On the, other si- on the side you're on, we call that who you are and the other side is called who you must be. Our tendency is to look across. It's a thousand feet down and a thousand feet across. Our tendency is to look across and say, I, I think I can make it. I think I can make it. So then we get into a game of suicidal pole vaulting. We back up and we get a running start and we stick the pole vault into the end and we try to lunge ourselves across and we make it about 10 feet and then we fall to the bottom a thousand feet down. And once we're down in the valley on our backs looking up, we finally realize, oh, I can't do it. And it's when we're at the bottom looking up in our failed effort 
that we're most able and ready to hear. You cannot do this on your own. Your efforts are not going to get you there. And so we find our way back up to the top, but for some reason we eventually find ourselves doing it all over again. Our lives in this regard are like a constant episode of the Roadrunner, and we're the coyote. We just keep trying over and over and over and over again in our own attempts and merits, but we can't make it. And it's not until we say who I must be is not achievable, but who Christ is for me is enough, and so I can rest in him instead of attempting to be my own man and earn my own way and work my own works. Brothers and sisters, works righteousness is a lie. And it's not just a lie. Paul says it's a damning lie. He tells them, if we who have preached to you the true gospel return and preach a gospel of works righteousness, or even if an angel were to come down from heaven and preach works righteousness, don't listen. In fact, let them be accursed. That's strong language. Literally, let them be anathema. Let them be condemned. It's damning language here, and it highlights the seriousness of the words of Paul. Now, I want to be clear that our immediate conclusion is not that those who preach a version of this different gospel will certainly be condemned. God has been merciful to many a preacher who ignorantly preach salvation by works, who he has eventually opened their eyes to this error, and afterward they have preached the true gospel. However, where there is no true repentance, and the preacher continues to insist that a religion of good works is the way to heaven, the curse of God will ultimately fall. Such a man has led his hearers far astray, He has fatally distorted the one message that tells them how to get right with God. He has helped to shut people out of heaven because they think they can get there on their own. And God in righteous judgment will respond by shutting such a man out of heaven. Well, Paul sort of closes this out by pointing to himself now in this writing and he shows us in his life and in his own writing that he is living upon the gospel. Look at verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul isn't living for man's approval. Paul doesn't have the fear of man and the desire for man's acceptance that we so often do. But how does he get there? You know, Paul has quite a story to tell himself. We're going to hear some of that story next week as we move into the next section. But you know, Paul was on his way to murder Christians. He was zealously killing the church because he thought that was the right thing to do. He was seeing to it that everyone who was a Christian that he could get his hands on, was being murdered. But then the Lord Jesus Christ showed up and knocked him off of his horse and blinded him for a time. He had a direct encounter with Jesus who called him to be an apostle, to preach the gospel to all who would hear. 
He spent his entire life before this as good as he could in works righteousness, only to find out in the end it was a completely futile effort. The Lord wrecked Paul. He wrecked him. He brought him to true life and repentance in Christ. So Paul isn't just writing this theologically because he knows it's a true thing. He knows it's true because he lived it. He lived the damning reality of works righteousness. He spun his wheels in the mud of works righteousness better than anyone else. But he didn't go anywhere and he couldn't get anywhere. Only when he was made able to rest in the righteousness of Christ alone was Paul able to see that his works were, in his words in Philippians, rubbish. They were dung completely and totally worthless as it pertained to salvation. So Paul's point is, why would I fear man and seek his approval? I did that my entire life and got nowhere. Now, I am a servant of Christ. I'm not trying to please man. Brothers and sisters, are you seeking to please man and have man's approval? Or are you set on pleasing God? If God is your God, you find rest in Christ alone. Resting in the truth that all that Christ has accomplished and all that Christ is for you is enough. And when Christ is enough, I turn away from anyone and everyone who tells me that for my acceptance, I need to be popular, I need to be gifted and eloquent and influential and learned, that I personally need to preach at big conferences or write best-selling books. That's not the gospel. Reject everything that calls you to live a life in which you are seeking the approval of man. And friends, there are some of you here this morning who do just that. Your life is lived in attempt to please every single man at every turn. You live for the approval of others. And you may not want to admit that to be true, but unless you are resting in Christ, it's your only option in life. I want to commend to you Jesus Christ, who has made a way for you to stop trying to earn something all the time. Stop trying to work your way into heaven because you'll never make it. Jesus made a way. And in your repentance and faith in him, his way can be your way. Life everlasting can be yours in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing in your life to prove yourself? That's our question. Are you seeking the approval of others at every turn? Are you seeking to please man or are you focused on resting in Christ and pleasing God? Stop pole vaulting over the chasm. You'll never make it. Rest in Jesus and he will bring you there. We in ourselves will never be who we must be. We in Christ are all that we need to be that God will be pleased to welcome us into his kingdom. The biggest problem in my life, and it is likely in yours as well, is that we're trying to win at life as though a trophy can be attained through us. And when you look at my life, you will see all kinds of foolishness. You can see all kinds of nights of despair and all kinds of failures. 
And it's all because of this. But Paul tells us that in the gospel, there's a way out of that. This is how you can heal the problems, all kinds of problems. They're the answer to our burned out, tired, man-pleasing, discontented lives. And the answer is simply the gospel, the true gospel wherein we rest in Christ alone. Be a servant of Jesus Christ. He's saying, follow my example. Be a servant of Jesus Christ. And when you're a servant of Jesus Christ, you won't be a slave to what anybody else thinks or asks ever again. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel. We thank you for the radical amazing, life-changing, world-tilting truth that Christ is enough. And when we rest in him, we need not continue to seek your favor by our good works. That we need not seek to please man and be accepted by man and be applauded by man but that when we rest in Christ, we have all that we need. We pray, God, that you would be at work in all of our hearts to make us to be more honest about who we really are, to abandon all of our attempts at self-righteousness and to rest in the righteousness of Christ alone. For those who are here this morning who are trapped in this cycle of self-redemption, I pray, God, that you would break them of themselves, that you would bring them to the bottom of that cliff in the valley, and as they look up, they would see their only hope is Christ. Would you remind all of us each and every day that our only hope is Christ, and that I can live because he lives, that I am accepted by you because Christ was accepted on my behalf. Help me, oh God, help all of us to rest in that truth that we can get out of a cycle of works and to live fully upon your infinite wisdom and grace. May we do this all for your glory and for the good of your church. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.